This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. When you hear this term, it's usually used as a pejorative, Christian nationalism. Now, it means one thing to the person who's labeling someone as a Christian nationalist. It may mean an entirely different thing to someone who wears that label as a badge of honor. And then there are lots of Christians who are, well, they agree with a lot of the goals of Christian nationalism or what it seems to be, but they don't agree with the means that Christian nationalism proposes. What is it? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're going to discuss Christian nationalism. Dr. Andrew Walker joins us, Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of several books, including Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age, and a column for World Magazine titled, What Does Christian Nationalism Even Mean? Dr. Walker, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on. You say that the debate over so-called Christian nationalism disturbs you. Why is that? I think it disturbs me because a lot of individuals are talking past one another, kind of, I think, entrenching themselves in very, very kind of opposite corners. And that's obviously natural in any debate. But what I find unhelpful in this situation is there are aspects of Christian nationalism that I have sympathies with and also aspects that I have concerns about. And so there's very little margin right now for there to be clear-headedness in thinking about these issues without kind of immediately just going to one another's corners and saying, well, if you're a proponent of Christian nationalism, you're altogether bad. And if you're an opponent of Christian nationalism, you're just a liberal. I think we need to have a higher degree of nuance to this discussion and to recognize there are elements to be concerned about, but how you define Christian nationalism is, I think, about 98% of the debate. And if we're not careful, you can end up kind of delegitimizing basic Christian expression about public life, and it gets dismissed because it gets conveniently lopped into this category called Christian nationalism. As far as we can tell, what does that term Christian nationalism mean to those who use it as an epithet? So I think as if you're a critic of Christian nationalism, what you mean by that term could be a few different ways. One, it would be that you think that Christian nationalists think that America is in a unique covenant with God, almost in a way that is similar to Israel's relationship to God. I think that might be maybe the most kind of extreme end of how you would depict a Christian nationalist. I think that there then is a less problematic category that still has some potential problems tied to it, and that's when you begin to see Christian nationalism as more or less saying that to be American is to be a Christian, 
And it's the job of the government to kind of prop up Christian symbols and Christian privilege, uh, both in civil society and in government. And so I have immense problems with that category as well. And so again, I think this is all pleading for clarity in terms of saying, what does Christian nationalism mean? The adjective white is often coupled with the term Christian nationalism. What is that meant to imply, do you think? I think there is uh, a tendency right now in kind of the sociological disciplines to say that Christian nationalism, as it's being defined in kind of academic corners, is to define it not necessarily by belief in Christian doctrine, but belief in a certain ethnic identity that these sociologists would refer to as white. Uh, Because you'll also have uh, these same sociologists refer to elements of kind of the African-American church as also Christian nationalist, but they mean different things by kind of African-American Christian nationalism than they do white Christian nationalism. And I think it is very important to state here that some critics of Christian nationalism are more helpful than others because there are some critics of Christian nationalism who will fully admit that one does not necessarily need to be a Christian in order to be a Christian nationalist. Rather, it's simply Christianity serving an ideological and political end with little regard for what the doctrinal basis for Christianity is. And that gets back to you know one of the prior questions that you were asking me about is kind of, what does this term mean? And that's where I want to come back and say, exactly, what does this mean? If we're using Christian nationalism devoid of any kind of theological categories, that does raise the question to me, uh, the utility of the term. So how have those of us who are merely, among other things, concerned about the attack on natural marriage and the natural family, how have we come to be labeled as Christian nationalists? So again, I think this is all depending on who the critic is in question. I did a book review on Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry's book, Taking America Back for God, a few years ago. And in the back of their book, they go so far as to say that if you're complementarian in your views on gender, and if you hold pro-life convictions, those are markers of being Christian nationalist. And that's where, in my review, I was critical of these authors, because what they're lopping into as Christian nationalism, which again, could hypothetically in their account be devoid of overt theological principles, I want to characterize as basic biblical, orthodox, historic Christianity. And so that's where we begin to have these massive problems enter into the equation where the use of kind of these secular epithets get used to basically dismiss and delegitimize very, very uncontroversial standard historic Christian belief. How have Christian moral truths historically influenced American politics? Even when we look back and see the glaring contradictions at the heart of our founding, when we declare that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and meanwhile we have slavery— I think that we're all recognizing that the notion of there being a transcendent creator who gives us these rights by virtue of the fact that human beings for the first time in kind of the enlightenment and in kind of the American experiment, there is an elevated status of the human being. 
and that's new on the world stage. And so I think that's one really terrific way to point out how Christianity influenced the early origins of kind of the American story. Again, I want to be intellectually honest and say, if we did influence America's founding, it doesn't mean we did it necessarily well or overly consistently because of the fact that we did have racism and chattel slavery at the beginning of our country. And that strikes at the grand kind of contradiction of the early American experiment is how can you say all men are created equal and then be denying that principle of equality and fairness and justice to another set of human beings. And I think that's a way in which we understand that human nature is fallen, political societies that they form are fallen as well. But again, I think it's it's not really even controversial from a secular historical perspective to say that Christianity influenced not just America, but influenced notions of constitutionalism with principles like the rule of law, not the rule of men principles like that human nature is understood to be fallen and not necessarily perfectible. When you get to categories like human rights, this precedes even the American founding. But I would argue, and I think my research would would tell me, that notions of human rights are bequeathed to us from the Christian tradition. What specific concerns do you have about genuine Christian nationalism? I think where you see individuals fusing the mission of the church with the mission of the state, I think that that's a theological heresy on the one hand in trying to use the state to Christianize the country. And now again, I want to be very careful here because I do think that there are ways in which government can recognize our historical legacy, but it's when And if the nation state were to take on a self-consciousness that we see it as our job as magistrates to Christianize the population, I think that begins to blur a lot of very important categories regarding ecclesiology, regarding regeneration, regarding missiology. I think where you have kind of a, a kind of God and country fusing of America as the new Israel, I think that's problematic. I think if claiming a Christian identity over and against a non-Christian identity as somehow less American is also problematic. But I also want to recognize at the same time that Christianity did play a unique role in America's founding. And I think intellectual honesty demands that. It's one thing to say that we are a Christian nation. It's another thing to say that we are a nation inextricably influenced by Christianity. And the language here really matters. And so let's be really clear and precise with the terms that we're using. What is this necessary tension that you describe that's created by a Christian influence in a religiously pluralistic society? I think that tension comes from the fact that I simultaneously want America to be as Christian as possible. I don't want our Christian influence to recede whatsoever. I think, in fact, that we have to have some degree of a common culture for us to have a nation. And so I don't think we should cut ourselves off from our roots, historically speaking. At the same time, I don't want to use those categories to the exclusion of other people 
and saying that because you're Muslim or you're Jewish, that you're somehow less American. Now, the other tension is this, that I don't know, and, and I mean, I'll go one step further and say, I don't think that it's possible for liberal democracy and constitutionalism to be really coherent in the long run without something underneath that constitution and something underneath that people, such as a commitment to some type of, of tradition that is helping form the people. And I again, that's where I come back and say, Christianity did help form our nation. And so really this is finding the correct pH balance, so to speak. It means that we can have individuals who are legislators who are Christians, and I don't mind if they make Christian arguments if they're in office, because you don't lose your religious liberty when you're in office. But it's to understand that just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that someone who's not a Christian has an illegitimate place in government or an illegitimate place in society as well. Dr. Andrew Walker is our guest. We're talking about Christian nationalism. He has a challenge or a plea for all sides in the Christian nationalism debate. We'll find out what they are next. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C. The registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu The Church's Music from the 20th Century. The 17th Century. The 11th century. 
8th century. The 4th century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're discussing Christian nationalism with Dr. Andrew Walker, Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of several books, including Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age, and a column for World Magazine titled, What Does Christian Nationalism Even Mean? Dr. Walker, you have a plea or a challenge for all sides of the debate regarding Christian nationalism. What are those pleas or challenges? If you're someone who claims the label of Christian nationalist, I want to hear from you how you're going to claim that America is and ought to be almost, you know, exclusively Christian without trying to remove people from their equal status as American citizens. I also want to hear what does your ideal arrangement look like? If you're going to have a Christian nationalist nation, does it mean that you're going to have legislators getting intimately involved in the lives of denominations? Are legislators going to be appointing bishops in various denominations? I want to see granular specifics of what this is going to look like. For those who are critical of Christian nationalism, I want you to explain to me where it is appropriate for Christians to bring their faith into the public square without accusing them of being Christian nationalist. And I think we see that particularly in kind of progressive non-Christian perspectives right now, that because they just don't like conservative Christians and they want conservative Christianity out of power, one way they can do that is just delegitimizing it by calling it Christian nationalism. And I think I also have a challenge for kind of anti-Christian nationalists who are also Christians. And I think my plea to them would be, Okay, if, if you're opposed to Christian nationalism, tell me what positive vision for Christian political engagement do you have? Is there a legitimate use for power in the hands of a Christian who occupies office? And if you think that's wrong, then tell me, what do you think the purpose of government is? Does government have any legitimate place at all? Because one of my concerns is if you're a Christian who's really, really anti-Christian nationalist, you can kind of easily bleed into a very kind of cynical view of government or a very kind of quietist view of political engagement that says that it's somehow virtuous for Christians to be marginalized and persecuted. I just think that's a very asinine way of thinking about political theology. And I think it's spoken from a very privileged position to say that Christians should be off on the margins. I have Christian students of mine from nations where they are marginalized. None of them valorize that. They all would like to have political rights and political liberty. And I think that's where we need to have a positive case for political engagement, not simply a negative one. What's the danger of attempting to sacralize the culture? I think the danger in attempting to sacralize the culture is to say that by participation in kind of this ambient 
amorphous identity called Christian America, I don't think it would make you Christian in a regenerate sense. I think that individuals who think of themselves as growing up in a Christian culture can conceive of themselves as being Christians. And I've got a good friend of mine who will talk about the term, the unsaved Christian. And I think Christianity can create what we call unsaved Christians, that individuals who think they are Christians, but they're really not. But because they've grown up in an ambient kind of Christian culture, they just conceive of themselves as a cultural identity around being Christian. And so I think we want to be very, very careful about that, while also recognizing, as I said earlier, that I think Christian influence on culture is good, that Christian influence on our common culture in terms of shaping norms around marriage and appreciation for life and human dignity is very, very important. And so we have to constantly be pleading for a very narrow, delicate balancing act in this conversation. What's the danger of attempting to remove Christian influence from the culture? The danger is that secularism and liberal democracy, to the extent that they are cut off from Christian influence, these systems of thought don't have the explanation within themselves to posit ideas like human rights and human dignity. You'll have honest atheists like a Douglas Murray and a Tom Holland admit this out loud, that secularism is more or less living off the borrowed capital of a Christian tradition. And so I think this is where we want to say this is one of the ways that a positive place for Christianity in the culture exists, is the fact that society on its own, when it just kind of creates these ideas like rights and dignity out of thin air, if that isn't anchored in a transcendent account of morality and law, then it's left to the prevarications of government officials and convention and consensus, which can easily be taken away if the wrong people are in office or the wrong people have majority. So again, I think this is where we need to say, how do you have an account of human rights and human dignity apart from a transcendent basis for those concepts? What's the danger of Christian quietism? The danger in Christian quietism is more or less seeing that you have no responsibility for your neighbor. Uh, it's one of the reasons, for example, that I'm not a pacifist. Pacifism, in my understanding, is the opposite of loving your neighbor. You can't love your neighbor and then provide no system of defense if your neighbor is getting mowed down by some political regime. And so this is where you have to have a positive understanding of the use of government. Uh, not only that, but the potential for Christians to participate in this understanding of government because we are partakers in the same creation order as non-Christians. And so if you are kind of a political quietist and you say that Christians can't be involved in government or they can't be police officers or members of the armed services, that means you're reaping a benefit from something that you yourself are not willing to participate in. And I think that's a, a form of political Gnosticism. So you're, you're touting all of these ideals that you're doing nothing to help fulfill yourself. Finally, you and many others have quoted founder John Adams. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any others. What did Adams mean? Oh, I love that quote, and it's such an important one. I, I think he's getting at something absolutely essential, which is what I've been saying already, is that for liberal democracy to work, it requires self-government. And for people to be self-governed, they have to have virtue. And virtue 
in a kind of a classical tradition and understood even at our founding was the source of virtue was found in religion. And so religion was was seen as that kind of ultimate authority that grounded where our sense of moral virtue comes from because it gives an account of where morality is accountable to. It's not accountable to just uh, regimes or people in power. It's ultimately accountable to God, usually on the basis of an understanding of punishment and reward. And so this is where you have to have a robust kind of pre-political communitarian identity apart from just kind of pure proceduralism or pure constitutionalism. You have to have something underneath the structure of government to give meaning and purpose and kind of a destiny to why human beings exist. And we don't want that to be left simply in the hands of government. You need to have those questions answered by religion. Dr. Andrew Walker is Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of several books, including Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age, and a column for World Magazine titled, What Does Christian Nationalism Even Mean? You can read it and purchase Liberty for All at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Walker, thank you. Thank you. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part today by Ad Crucem. Ad Crucem provides Christ-centered, high-quality products and services that confess the Christian faith. Check out their greeting cards, Christmas ornaments, jewelry, posters, fine art, and more at adcrucem.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Charles Camosi about The Guardian's attempt to dehumanize the unborn, its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly, and we'll discuss Christ, the center of our eternal life, with Dr. David Scare. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You can help save lives in Southern Illinois by participating in 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. Vigils will be held outside abortion facilities at Granite City, Carbondale, and Fairview Heights, Illinois. For information on Granite City, visit 40daysgc.com. To learn more about Carbondale and Fairview Heights, go to coalitionforlife.com. You can protect mothers and children by joining the worldwide effort of 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. Terry Mattingly is the eternal boomer. In other words, he, due to the circumstances of his birth, is lame. Here's some feedback from the Issues Etc. comment line. Terry can be counted on to deliver his boring, blasé takes in his irritatingly pseudo-profound fashion. Anyway, lame. May God have mercy on Terry and Issues Etc. You're all a bunch of lame boomers. The Issues Etc. comment line, available 24-7, 618-223-8382. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made.
I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Do you dread going to work out? Performance Fitness in Edwardsville offers a fun, supportive, tight-knit community and environment. Visit them on the web at performancefitness618.com or call 618-692-5063. Performance Fitness is the facility in the St. Louis Metro East where the focus is on member results, not membership numbers. 618-692-5063 or performancefitness618.com. Performance Fitness of Edwardsville. <laughs> 